The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. And I ask that you grant us eyes to see Christ and hope in him and in the promises of the gospel and all that you promised to be for us. You were a, a reservoir of grace for Philip in his flight from the persecution in Jerusalem. And you, are and you are a reservoir of grace for us too in our troubles. And like you did with Philip, anchor our hope in the gospel. Grant us grace to keep in step with your spirit such that many would be blessed by the gospel through us. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last few weeks that we've been in the book of Acts, we've been following Philip, the evangelist, as he fled from the persecution in Jerusalem. And uh, the believers were scattered, and Philip happened to go south towards Samaria. And we saw that that fulfilled Jesus' commandment in Acts 1.8 as he headed to Samaria, spoke the gospel, broke the barriers of ethnic and racial pride and prejudice, and many Samaritans became believers. And then last week, uh, Philip was still in, in Samaria when Rene Gonzalez preached the text, the previous text, and there we saw Philip's encounter with Simon the magician, and, and that was a mixed bag. You know, Simon believed, and many others believed in Christ and were baptized. And on the other hand, Simon the magician thought to add giving out the Holy Spirit to his bag of magic tricks, and he offered money to Peter for that ability. You know, like it was a trick he could buy. You know, hey, Peter, could you? Can I give you enough money to give me the ability to pass out the Holy Spirit to whomever I want it? For that, Peter sternly rebuked him. So that was last week's text. Now, this week's text is uh, the engagement that Philip had with an important government official, this Ethiopian eunuch. And once again, we're reminded that as Jesus promised in Acts 1-8, the gospel is going forth from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. So now Simon, or excuse me, now uh, Philip is interacting with an Ethiopian. And what I want to do is just walk through it, make a few comments, and, uh, and we'll take it where it leads us. So let's walk through. Ho open your Bibles if you, I hope you still have them open to Acts 8. Verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Odd. I mean, this is odd. You know, what if the Spirit said to you, go to uh, Nicolet and 7th Avenue, or 7th Street. 
okay, <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> so it's a particular desert road uh, in the middle of nowhere, and without a, without a hint of questioning, like Jonah questioned, <laughs> Philip rose and went, verse 27. And what God knew in his providence, Philip didn't know, that God in his sovereign grace and mercy had ordained that Philip would speak the gospel to this Ethiopian on that particular day in that particular middle of nowhere place and the Ethiopian would believe and be saved. He was a man chosen by God loved before the foundation of the world to be in Christ. You know, so just, just stop and marvel there. If you're a believer today, and if you're not a believer, your only hope would be the same. If you're a believer today, just marvel that the reason that you believe right now is because God loved you. He loved you. From before the foundation of the world, he loved you. Is it because I figured things out? Is it because my parents? Is it because I was born? No. Not determinatively, no. Those are all means. The reason that you are in Christ this morning is because God loved you. and ordained that the gospel would come to you with power and grace and faith. It's amazing. My hope for you, if you don't know Christ, is that God would do the same for you, call you into his eternal love and grant you faith to believe. Verse 27, in the middle of verse 27, it says, and there was an Ethiopian a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. So three things about him. He's an Ethiopian that probably meant he was from the area, not just merely what we think of as Ethiopia today, but probably Sudan in, in ancient times what we would call as modern-day Sudan, kind of that region of, of Africa. Uh, on the one hand, he's a very powerful and influential person. He's a court official of Candace. And when you see that word Candace, uh, just remember all the queens of Ethiopia were called Candace, kind of like all the kings of Rome were called Caesar. So Candace is the queen of Ethiopia. And historically, I found this interesting, that kings of the region would often, for whatever reason, defer the running of the kingdom to the queen. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I won't even guess. Uh, but uh, so the queens did, did all the heavy lifting in the kingdom, and the, and the king oversaw the queen, I guess. And so she's got this treasury. She's got, act, you know, under her authority is the treasury of Ethiopia. And in order to oversee that, she appoints this man, this Ethiopian eunuch. 
in charge of all the wealth of Ethiopia now under the queen. So he's an Ethiopian. He's uh, like the secretary of treasury. And then thirdly, he's a, he's a eunuch. So on the one hand, he's got this powerful position, but on the other hand, he's a, he's a very broken person. He's a eunuch. That means he had been sexually neutered, castrated, at the time, it was a brutal way to ensure that no sexual impropriety would take place between the high officials and the women in the royal household. That means that along with the privilege of working at the highest levels of governmental power came the impossibility of fathering children, the unlikelihood of marriage. And in fact, I should add that with the impossibility of having children came a sense of there's nobody to carry on my family name. It ends with me. Sort of a removal of a future. So even though his position carried a lot of authority and power, it also came with uh, probably a sense of inward shame, a sense of being defective, and according to Deuteronomy 23:1, even though he had gone to Jerusalem to worship during Pentecost, he was on his way home, he likely was forbidden entry into the temple because he was a eunuch. Unclean. So now, Philip's on the desert road without a hint or clue what to expect and along comes this royal chariot, perhaps in some kind of royal procession. I don't know. Verse 28 says the Ethiopian was seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. <laughs> wow. And the Spirit spoke to Philip clearly. We don't know if it's... I mean, it doesn't say audibly. Could have been audible. Could have been inaudible. We don't know. The Spirit spoke to Philip clearly. Verse 29. Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So Philip climbed up into the chariot and verse 32 tells us that the eunuch was reading this messianic prophecy from Isaiah 53. You see it in Acts 8, 32. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Slaughter, life taken away, humiliation. Puzzled, the eunuch asks Philip, verse 34, 
about whom, I ask you? Does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. What did Philip say? <laughs> you know, we have these little glimpses of the sermons in, in, in Acts, in the whole Bible. Uh, maybe Hebrews is the biggest example of a full sermon, but, you know, we have these two-minute versions of what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, and my curiosity just goes to, what did Philip say? Beginning with Isaiah 53, where did he go? So, I wonder if it sounded something like this. Sir, permit me to explain to you the one of whom the prophet speaks. Not long ago in Jerusalem, a man, Jesus, lived among us, and he did good, only good. You see, he came from God. He was God's very own son, the long-awaited Messiah, the promised one, the Christ, the heaven-sent king who would rule over all things with justice and peace and mercy and equity. He was the hope of the world. He loved us. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He cast out demons from the possessed and tormented. He cleansed lepers. He even raised the dead, bringing profound joy to the grieving and afflicted. He taught us the truth of God with authority and mind-boggling wisdom, exceeding the authority and the wisdom of our religious teachers. Despite all the truth that he taught and all the good that he did and all the miraculous mercy and love that he showed, the religious leaders hated him. They hated him. They hated his sin-exposing truth. They hated that the crowds followed him. Jealous and threatened, the religious leaders conspired to kill him through betrayal, through an amped-up mob and a mock trial, and finally, by Roman crucifixion. And just like the, scripture, the scriptures foretold, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. He was ridiculed, flogged, and crucified. But listen to me carefully. His death was foretold in the scriptures by Isaiah and the prophets. Look, I'm opening up Isaiah 53, 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So you see, he was like a, a scapegoat, a, a sacrifice to pay for sins. 
but, but not to pay for his own sins as the Son of God. He was faultless. No, he died to pay for the sins of many others, for yours and for mine. By this, he demonstrated his love for us and the riches of God's love for us. No, he died for the sins of many. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he was crucified, died, and was buried. But long ago, right here in Isaiah 53, verse 10, long ago the prophets had foretold that God would raise him from the dead Just as Isaiah wrote, he will see his offspring. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So so God accepted his sacrifice for our sins, causing many to be accounted righteous. Isaiah 53, 11. And with his sacrificial work completed once for all time, God raised him from the dead and exalted him as both Lord and Christ. Many of us saw this Jesus risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, to the right hand of God, to take his place as reigning king, Messiah over all, seated at the right hand of God. So now, at this point, I'm thinking, I'm the eunuch, let's say. All this sounds great, If you're Jewish, turn to Isaiah 56, would you? You know, it's not unusual when we get quotes from the Old Testament in the New Testament that there are clues that the author has a larger context in mind than the bit quoted in the New Testament. You get what I mean? So it says, I mean, here we had a, a clip from Isaiah 53, and I just explained expanded my referencing of Isaiah 53 to the wider chapter. And now I have this hunch (laughs) in the back of my mind of this possibility that Philip didn't just stick with Isaiah 53, but beginning with Isaiah 53, he spoke the gospel to him. Well, where else might he have gone? Maybe to Isaiah 56 to answer this question. Imagine the Ethiopian saying, is, is this Christ, this forgiveness with God only for Jews? Could it be for non-Jews, for God-fearing Gentiles, people from, from other nations as well? Could it, perchance, be for those counted unclean, broken, the defective? Could his death be for eunuchs? 
Isaiah 56, 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house, within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. To which Philip might add the apostolic teaching. Sir, I assure you, the promise of Christ is for you and for all who are far off, for all those whom the Lord our God calls. It's for you. Now God commands all people everywhere to repent of their sins and trust in Christ, receive his mercy, receive this grace that we're talking about through his son, the Messiah, and be baptized, calling on the Lord for a pure heart. And it is those who believe in him who have received this grace, this forgiveness, that he grants the grace to belong to the people of God, to the household of God, forever and ever and ever. Come on in. Back in Acts 8, 36, I, I get a kick every time I, I read this verse. Look, water, why shouldn't I be baptized? <laughs> hey, there's water. <laughs> See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And so the eunuch stopped, the chariot, Philip went down into the water, and, the eunuch and, uh, and Philip baptized the eunuch. And verse 39 closes with this account. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing back to Ethiopia. Well, I want you to be amazed at the ministry of Philip. You know, from the little that we know, he had his share of stresses and troubles that might work against ministry to other people. His colleague Stephen in the diaconal ministry was just murdered in Jerusalem brutally and publicly. His church congregation is being persecuted by the authorities and scattered in every which way, every direction. People are being dragged out of their homes, being separated from their children just because they're Christians, taken off to jail. And the believers are on the run, fleeing not only the threat of violence, but the threat of death. I mean, when somebody in your church is, is stoned for being a Christian, for talking, 
believes in impact. And so they scatter, Philip and the other believers, and they don't know where they're going or how long they're going to be refugees. They're just out. And yet, as he goes from place to place, he has this gospel love for people, very reflective of the love of God for us in Christ. He has this gospel love, and so it's almost like he's a, he's a gospel teaching machine. <laughs> like he's, you know, wherever he goes, whoever he bumps into, gospel comes out. I mean, it reminds me of, a, of an illustration uh, that Paul Tripp uses. He, he holds up a water bottle. Maybe there's one here. No. Uh, he holds up a water bottle, and uh, he takes the top off of it, and then he shakes it. And he says, you know, like, this is when trouble happens. Like, why'd the water come out? Because it was in there. And my observation about Philip is he, the gospel's in there. And when the troubles come, it comes out at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It's supernatural, his response to the, to the shaking, the stresses of his life. Why do I say that? Why do I see that here right now? I'll tell you why. Two weeks ago, my wife and I attended a meeting of the Church Planting Leaders Fellowship. It's a, it's a group that I belong to. It's about 125 leaders from across the country that represent 80-some percent of the churches planted in America. And it's, the group is led by Ed Stetzer, uh, who, along with the team, uh, plans the content of the meetings. There's two each year with what might be helpful to serve these leaders of church planting networks and movements with what might help advance the gospel. And uh, the theme a couple weeks ago was leading in trauma and stress. And the focus was to better understand the stresses of our current moment in history in order that we might not be paralyzed by those current stresses, but that we might advance the gospel coming out of our current context. That, that the current context wouldn't be a setback to the grace of God, but rather a springboard. Let me tell you some of the things that got me thinking, and I hope actually to get you thinking about this, thinking about our current context and its impact on us. In simple terms, the month since early 2020 have been stressful for the whole wide world. It stresses any type of change that causes physical, emotional, psychological strain. And when that stress is prolonged or deeply distressing, it's called trauma. Think about it. Here in America, in addition to, the, the, to COVID-19 and its existence and the grief that's touched some of you of over 600,000 COVID-attributed deaths, we've experienced right a couple miles from here, the death of George Floyd and then the rioting 
here in the Twin Cities, in our city, the polarization on racial issues, the polarization in politics, all this from 2020. Polarization over masks and vaccines. We've experienced several months of quarantine, closed offices, closed schools, closed gyms, closed theaters, closed restaurants, closed churches. We've come through a sudden separation from face-to-face contact with people with whom we live in close proximity. And as a result, some of us have developed a sense of community, not with the people that are around us, but with strangers with whom we share common interests or common fears or common hopes as we gather online to socialize. All of this comes on top of the normal troubles and trials of life. Relational conflict is pretty common in human existence, is it not? Uh, challenges of friendship and family, work challenges, challenges with coworkers and supervisors, educational aspirations and challenges to achieve, unplanned health concerns, bad news from the doctor, and funerals for friends and loved ones. All that's going on all the time. Such that now half of the population reports a decline in their mental health. Those reporting the highest decline in mental health are minorities, young people, and parents with children at home. It's been a season marked by increases in isolation, anxiety, fear, outrage, distrust, and despair. And, and these stresses, that's what, that's what I was learning last week or two weeks ago, these stresses impact how we feel and how we think and how we relate to others. Under stress, irritability increases as does moodiness. Our brains are impacted and we make poorer decisions. Unwanted changes in weight take place. Blood pressure, changes in sleep, increases in alcohol consumption. People under stress are more prone to either withdraw from other people or to attack other people, or to form a subgroup from which to either withdraw or attack. And you know, churches like ours have been divided by all this conflict. I I counted just off the top of my head yesterday six churches in my sphere of relationship that are in conflict right now. Uh, conflict is, is pastor elder to pastor elder. Conflict is uh, between uh, the people and the leaders. Conflict is between the people and the people. So I know of six churches in deep conflict. 
And, 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 and I speak about the context that we're in, not to minimize any real issues, not to minimize the issues that need to be worked through and talked about, not to minimize sin, not to minimize anything like that, but just, just to say we're in a context that makes working on those things harder. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of, <laughs> let's say I have an issue with my wife and, and I want to talk about it. And so it's, you know, whatever. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. I want to bring it up. And it doesn't go very well. And contributing to why that conversation doesn't go very well is the fact that our baby was up all night and neither of us got any sleep. <laughs> it's like that. Not like the issue's not real, but we have a context that we're in, and, and I want us to be aware that as a human population, uh, we're in this context and call us to, call, to ask God for all his sufficient grace to come to bear in this moment. So, Philip, I observe here now, is a man under prolonged stress. And what does he do? I mean, as far as we know, he does none of the things that natural human, that human beings naturally do in the context of stress. He doesn't withdraw, he engages. He doesn't attack, Though he's under threat, he doesn't turn inward. He engages in love with other people. He doesn't set up a safe little tribe to hide in a cave and let everything pass and just be all alone and safe. And no, but he's going from town to town in places he's never been, talking to people. So what he does is totally out of step with the natural tendencies of a human being under stress. What he does is supernatural, and I want to say, how does he do it? And I see two things. Two things. First, he's gospel-saturated. I alluded to that with the shaking of the bottle. The gospel's filling him. The grace of Christ is filling him. So when the stresses come, the graces of Christ, the gospel comes out. And the second thing I see about him, he's responsive to the Holy Spirit. So I think we'd miss the point if, if you left here and thought the takeaway, the application from this text was merely that we ought to speak the gospel to other people who don't know Jesus. That is a valid application. But there's more here for us. What I see is Philip doesn't just speak the gospel because it's the right thing to say. He lives the gospel. Kind of like like Paul. You know, remember when Paul said, The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Philip lives by faith in this Christ. That's why he can 
jump into Isaiah 53 and say, I'll tell you the gospel from there. Let me tell you about this Jesus whom I love and treasure who keeps me, who gives me grace and fills me with his love such that I can minister to other people the gospel of grace that God has poured into me. So I, I hope you catch what I'm, what I'm trying to say is Be saturated with the gospel. Live the gospel. Speak the gospel to yourself. Remind, what does is, what is being in Christ have to do with whatever your issue is today? A conflict. A mask dispute. A whatever. What does, how does all that God promises to be for me in Christ, his forgiveness, his presence, his power, his favor, his help. What is, how does that impact now? Live there like Philip. And you know what? It will come out of your mouth when you meet people who need Jesus. And it will be real, and it will be fresh, and it will be, let me tell you how Jesus is carrying me today with his grace. So that's the first thing I see. He's gospel-saturated. Are you gospel-saturated? The second thing I see is he's responsive to the Spirit you know, back in Acts 6, when the, when the prototype deacons were chosen to serve the widows, you remember one of the qualifications for the six was that they be of good repute and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And uh, Philip was one of those. And obviously here in our text, he's full of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit speaks. Philip listens. The Spirit says, Go. Philip says, go. I mean, Philip just goes. He just goes. Nothing good that happened in our text would have happened had Philip not listened to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Think of it. You know, the conversation with the Ethiopian, the, the conversion of the Ethiopian, the gospel to Ethiopia, the, the grace toward eunuchs and the broken, none of that would have happened had Philip just ignored the prompting of the Holy Spirit. But he heard, and he moved, and um, that's the second thing I want for us. Not only that we would be saturated with the gospel, but that we would be attuned, we would listen to the Holy Spirit, and when he says, go, they will go. Go into the difficult situations and speak gospel. Gospel to one another. Gospel, yes, to neighbors and coworkers and, and uh, schoolmates, classmates, dorm mates. Grace, gospel grace to spouses. And may it come 
as a natural overflow in the stresses of our lives because the gospel's in there. Father, make it happen by the power of your spirit, I pray. It's a beautiful text and I think a timely word for us. Saturate us with your gospel. Saturate us with your grace. Fill us with a a deep and a profound awareness of the treasure of all that you are and promise to be for us in Christ such that all the other wants and desires and aspirations that we might have would be seen as weak second place competitors to the treasure that you are and to the hope that you promise for us. So saturate us with your gospel and make us sensitive to your Holy Spirit. These things we ask for the glory of your name and for your good in our lives, in our homes, in our church, and in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.